Our sermon is titled, Awake, O Sleeper. It's found in, in Colossians chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Um, the Bible uses the metaphor or the analogy of sleeping in two different ways. It uses it for the Christian who dies. Um, it's used metaphorically. Some people will preach something called soul sleeping. That's not what I'm advocating this morning. That's not really a biblical precept or concept. But the writers of the New Testament used the metaphor of sleeping to describe the Christian when they pass from this life, but before they fully receive uh, the glorified body that First Thessalonians speaks about and that sort of thing. Um, the other way it's used is that that first one's in the positive. This one's in the negative. It's folks who don't know Jesus. It's people who have not placed their faith in Christ. Someone who is asleep, it's more like a stupor. It's more like somebody who is willfully ignorant or willfully naive to Christ and what he's done, or, or at least Christ and his supremacy. You might understand that Christ died for the sins of the world. You might understand that he claimed to be the Son of God. But these things in and of themselves, this knowledge does not make you a Christian. It's placing your faith in the fact that he is the Son of God, risen and conquering sin and death, that awakens us. And the warning today is to be awakened, to be shook from the sleep, the stupor that we've been in for too long. Now, the first way that happens is through faith. You place your faith in Jesus. Your eyes are opened to reality, to the truth. Jesus said, the, the, if you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. You will abide in the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is liberating. When you know the truth about anything, it just liberates you, doesn't it? When you go online and you see somebody share something and, you know, it's about a politician or, you know, a type of food or a type of this or a type of that or this celebrity or that celebrity. And then you, you look it up and you find out that's not true. That was just some dumb meme that somebody shared. It doesn't really mean it wasn't even true. It was a half truth. It's liberating to not be underneath that simple bondage. When you know the truth about life and how it pertains to Christ, the shackles, the burden that you have felt and carried for so long come off you and you're awakened. You suddenly see life differently. You begin to look at your enemies um, in a way to where you realize if they perish in their sin, then they don't go to be with their creator. They go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth that the Bible calls hell. That our enemies, even though they are our enemies, there's a potential there for them to become the child, a child of God. You start to see the, the truth of the gospel, the, the, the same sermons and messages and verses that have been shared for years, they begin to be uh, uh, awakened in you. Oh, I've heard that scripture for years, and now today it finally makes sense. Before we go any further, let's read Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, just, just three verses today, and we're really just, uh, mostly going to focus on, on verse 15. Verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, uh, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us as legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, over them in him. Let's pray. Jesus, your word here is very convicting. It's very empowering. It's very victorious. It inspires hope. It inspires faith. It makes us, it forces us to be real about ourselves. And I pray for nothing less than that today. Don't, don't let us walk away from here, Lord, lying to ourselves about our current state. Let us see ourselves as we are in you. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice the words that Paul uses about sin. We live in a day and an age where the idea of, being, of something being sinful is almost laughed at and mocked because everybody has this fluidity. I can make or break my own rules. I, I determine the path for my life and I choose what is best and I choose what is right and I choose what is wrong. And on the surface, that sounds right, but at some point, your right and your wrong is going to conflict with somebody else's right and somebody else's wrong. So imagine I came in today, I think it's right that everybody empties their pockets and gives all of their money to the offering today. I think that that's right. And many of you would chime in and say, I don't think that's right. You would say, Tony, that sounds like robbery. That sounds like thievery. And you're right, it would be. But I have determined that it was, it was right. And so what power do you have to tell me what is right or wrong? You see, that's the culture we live in today. I say that this is correct. I say that this is wrong. And that's how I live my life. And if you have a conflict with that, then you're intolerant. You are not tolerating my choice to live autonomously or, or as my own mini God. You are not allowing me to do that. So you're wrong and I'm right. This is the culture we live in. It's very simple. This, con this generation that we have now, myself included, is not very complicated. We want our stuff. We want it how we want it, and we want it now. That's human nature, you know, just turned up to 11. And so as you read through Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul uses words like trespass, dead, uncircumcision of your flesh, trespasses, record of debt, legal demands. There is, in the Bible and in God's kingdom, definite right and wrong, lawful, unlawful, righteous, sinful. And the world might vacillate back and forth on what they determine those things are, but we as Christians cannot. We, we have given the Lord that authority in our lives to determine what is a trespass, to determine what is a debt or what is that which makes us dead. But notice, that's who we are without Christ, dead. There's no, there's no you know, beating around the bush about our circumstance. Paul is not a man who wants to come in and sugarcoat everything so that you feel good about yourself. He comes in and says, no, you were dead in your trespasses. Let that, let that just kind of sink in for a moment. You're not dead physically. Your body's still functioning. Your heart's still beating. But there's another aspect of you that is absolutely dead, and that's your spirit. 
a phrase that we don't use in the church very often anymore is the, the idea of being born again. You know, when I first got saved, at, at, at I was about 13 years old, and, and I didn't know what I was doing until, about, until I was about 24. But the first moment that I remember actually acknowledging Jesus, placing my faith in Him, accepting Him as my Lord and as my Savior and as my King, and, and not even knowing what a lot of that meant, just realizing I need Him and He wants me, and so yeah, let's get together. Um, I remember them saying, okay, now you're a born-again Christian. That's how I'd introduce myself. You know, somebody asked, like, what's your religion? Well, I'm a a born-again Christian. And then it just kind of fell off. It was just Christian. And it's kind of semantics. I don't want to get too much into it. But the idea is the Bible talks about us being dead and needing to be born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a, a teacher, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and And that's where John 3.16 comes from. If you're familiar with that scripture, that's that account. But what happened was Nicodemus came and wanted to talk to Jesus about who he said he was. Nicodemus being a Pharisee, and if you've read the Gospels, the Pharisees and Jesus don't really get along. And so Nicodemus wants to meet with Jesus, but doesn't want to lose his reputation, so they meet at night. This clandestine meeting in the middle of the night to find out who Jesus is. Jesus accommodates him. If you're a non-believer today and you are seeking Christ, know that he's seeking you first. Jesus does not condemn Nicodemus for wanting to meet at night or to protect his reputation. Jesus is concerned with saving Nicodemus at any cost. And Nicodemus comes in, starts asking questions, questions, and Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God, and I'm paraphrasing, go back and read it today, John chapter 3, to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And it blows Nicodemus's mind. Born again? I understand being born the first time. You know, I was in my mother's womb and then I wasn't. I was born. But how do I get born again? Do I climb back into my mother's womb? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm a grown man. And Jesus just says, you got to be born again again. He just says it again to him. The idea is that we are spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead. And to enter the kingdom of God, we must be resurrected from that death. Jesus has come with that power to resurrect you, to cause you to be born again of the Spirit. As a bit of a spoiler into the future of the scriptures, uh, that's what I'm referencing, um, we will be given a glorified body. This body will be changed. It's corrupted, the word says, by sin. It's got to be changed. And so one day God will do that. But the first thing he'll do is resurrect you in the spirit. You will be born again. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by placing your faith in Jesus. There is no amount you can give. There are no, uh, there's no calendar full of Sundays that you can attend church. There's no potlucks there's not a set number of potlucks or, or, or functions you can go to. It's not how much Bible you can read or how much you can pray that will save you. Today, the only thing that will save you is Jesus and what he's done for you. And through that, you can be born again. You can be awakened, oh sleeper. Now, for some Christians, we fall back into that stupor. It's not that our salvation's taken away, and I don't want to operate underneath that kind of threat, like, oh, if you don't do this, God's going to take away your salvation. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What happens is we, we kind of, we, we get born again, but then it's like somebody hits us in the head, and we're kind of in this daze, like, oh, wow. Something happens in life. Somebody we trust betrays us. Somebody within the church says something that hurts you, and you're like, oh, I just, 
it just kind of takes you a moment and it, it, it knocks you into this stupor. And again, the only way to awaken out of that sleep is through Christ. So first off, when Jesus talks to us, whether we were Christian or not, he reminds us that being spiritually dead is our state without him. Sin doesn't just make us wrong. I mean, sometimes we look at sin like that, don't we? It's right or wrong. And if it's wrong, it's sin. If it's right, it's okay with God. But it's more than that. It's more than just, oh, I, I messed up. It's, it's a marker of death in our life. When we sin as Christians, it's like, it's like that old man is trying to take back over. We just can't shake him off. And we have to be about our Father's business, which is making us holy, which is, which is killing that sin which is in us. And for some of you, our, our sin comes in different packages, shapes, and flavors. And we all need Christ to get through that. And how he'll make you get through something will be different for you than it will be for me. But the truth is the same. Romans 6 and 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Paul contrasts that. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we talk about being born again and we talk about salvation and we talk about being righteous and being in Christ as we talked about last week and the week before, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Now, now if any of you work like a 40-hour-a-week job, you, you work your hours, and at the end of the week or the next following week, depending on how your payroll works, you will get paid for the work that you did. Those are your wages, Right? You know, you get paid 15 bucks an hour. You worked 40 hours. I went to public school. Can't do the math that fast, so add it up. But basically, that's what you have coming before Uncle Sam gets his hand in there and takes some of that and, you know, and your insurance and all that. That's what you expect because you worked. You earned it. And, and the Bible, Paul uses that same metaphor. What we've done have been wages that we've earned, and someday we're going to receive that proverbial paycheck for what we've done. So what we need is someone to come and give us a free gift that cancels out that. And that's where Jesus steps in. That's where Paul says, the wages of sin is death. That's true. That's real. But the gift of God is free. You have done nothing to earn it. In fact, you've done everything to earn the opposite. Yet God, through grace and mercy, gives you what you do not deserve rather than what we deserve. You see, if I stand before Christ today, me, myself, if I stand before Christ in my own works, in my own sin, in my own deeds, I will be found wanting. Meaning, I will lack the righteousness that God requires to approve me. I will stand, the Bible even says, my good works will hang as filthy rags compared to the glory of God. Have you ever seen, like, I like, I, have, I know nothing about cars if you want to make fun of me, that's fine. I know nothing about old cars. I just know what I like and I know what I don't like. I like old cars that are all fixed up. They look really cool, shiny paint jobs. You ever see one, you think, wow, it looks really good. It goes by, you know, like a, a late 60s Camaro or something like that. But then you see some other car come by, you're like, whoa, that one looks like garbage compared to this one. This thing's amazing. Or whatever car it is. That, there was nothing wrong with that first one, right? I mean, it was, it was good until you saw this one. Oh. You know, your, your, your Xbox 360 was great until the Xbox One came out, right? Xbox 360 is a great system. 
But the Xbox One, oh my gosh, you can do all these things, and the paddle's got edges now, and it's just different. It's better. Very pale, very bad metaphor. The holiness of God and our own, our own self-earned holiness. Like We look at it and go, oh, that's pretty great. You know, I did this, I gave money, I served at the potluck. And you stand before God, it's like, ah, oh, that holiness is holiness. Me, this is like filthy rags. This is nothing compared to God. And God could just justifiably just condemn us to hell. And that's a real fun sermon on a Sunday morning, but he has every right to, right? Have we, have we done the things needed to earn that sentence? Yes, because the wages of sin is death. We've earned that. However, God cancels out that debt. But how does he cancel it out? Does he just wink his eye? You know, all right, don't do it again, kid. You know, stay on the right side of the fence, you know. Don't, don't go doing that again. They just kind of sweep everything under the rug and put a big smile on. And, all right, everything's going to be fine. No. He himself steps down to take the place of our sin. This is why when we are born again and you find those Christians that just love Jesus, you're like, what is wrong with that person? They're just, they're too Christian. They just love, they're always, they're always helping people. They're always praying for folks. They love reading the Bible. You meet those people, those people generally, they realize they have been forgiven of much. The reality of hell doesn't scare them. What it does is it causes them to rejoice that God has saved them from it. When we talk about being saved, we are literally being saved from the wrath of God. It's not just hell. It's not just separation, but it's the just wrath of God. God saves us from that himself. Today, the word is to be awakened, to awake, O sleeper. Luke 15 and 32. This is the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorites. Um, it became my favorite when I became a father. But I don't think that's by mistake. When I saw myself as the son, it was a good story. But then when I saw myself as the father, it became even more meaningful to me. And in that story, Jesus tells of a father who has a son. And the son wants his inheritance and wants to go live his life. And and basically says, Dad, when you die someday, you're going to give me money. Can I just have it now so I can go do whatever I want to do now? You know, I want, to, I want to use that money when I'm in my 20s and 30s, not when I'm in my 50s and 60s. Can you just give it to me now? And the dad graciously says, sure. He must have known that he was going to come back someday. But the son goes, spends it all on the worst kind of living, ends up homeless and destitute and penniless and decides, I'm going to go back home and work for my dad. See, if, you, if you've gotten to that mindset where, you know, I'll just, I, I realize God is God and I've done wrong things. I'll, I'll go and I'll work it off. That's it. Jesus knows that mindset. And in, this, and in this story, this prodigal son who went away, who was wasteful, comes back and, and wants to tell his dad, I'll work for you. You treat your workers right. Just let me work here. Let me have three hots and a cot, and I'll just, I'll stay here, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just, that'll be our new relationship. And the father doesn't, doesn't agree to that. Before the son can even fully get out the plan, the father comes out and hugs him. I'm not a hugger. I've told you guys that before. I've gotten better. I, I, I try. And, and if you want a hug, great, I'll give you a hug. But here's, 
Here's what I know. A great big hug has in it relief and love and reconciliation and so much that speaks volumes without ever uttering a word. And the father comes and just hugs his son. He, he throws a robe on him, gives him a ring, which was a symbol of power, and tells the servants, hey, go kill the fattened calf. We're having a barbecue because my son has returned. 15 and 32 says at the end of this, because there was an older brother who wasn't really happy about this. The older brother that stayed there was like, I've been working all this time. and This guy gets to go spend his inheritance and then come back and dad acts like he never did anything. The father recognizes that, talks to the older brother, and and says to the brother, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The prodigal son didn't die physically, but he was dead because he was absent of the father. He He was gone. He left. And the father, in his wisdom, realized that the only thing that would bring the son back was to allow him to see the folly of his choices. And sometimes as parents, we have to do that. We have to allow the kids to see that, you know, cake for breakfast is going to end in an upset tummy. Not always. You don't always do that. But you let them kind of feel the heat so that they realize the folly of that choice. And you don't let them hurt themselves. You don't let them go too far. But the point here is that the father welcomed in the son who was dead but is now alive. And he's alive because he's back with his dad. And the Bible says in the book of Romans that If we place our faith in Christ, we have been given the right to become the children of God. You receive this brand new identity. You receive this brand new title. You are no longer the person you were. You are now completely brand new. It's not the the end of that process. We're promised that later there will be more change. But for now, you are brand new because you were born again. Ephesians 5 and 13 says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, let's see. I don't know how long I've been preaching. Not too long. We can re- you could really easily, in this moment, and maybe you've done this already, but let me awaken you again. Um, you may already be writing this off as the same old Christian rhetoric. Here we go again. Sin is bad. Jesus is good. Another wasted Sunday morning where I could have been sleeping in. But here's here's where, if you catch nothing else, catch this today. God doesn't bring these things up in his word, calling you spiritually dead and and, and, and telling you to arise and awake, O sleeper. He's He's not doing those things simply to condemn you. Although if you're outside of faith and you stand before God, you'll have no excuse, right? He reveals these things to you so that you might see your helplessness. Now, in the world, weakness is preyed upon, right? But in Christianity, weakness is turned into power. Paul says, and I believe it's in, it's in First or Second Corinthians, that when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak in and of myself, I do not glory or revel in that weakness. I realize that It is God's strength that comes through me, and I indeed am strong. Why? Because God loves us enough, so much so, 
that instead of leaving us just as cleaned up people, he takes us and changes us and makes us brand new so that now we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we have the hope of the return of Christ. I shared this on Wednesday and I'll share it again today. I was driving and I saw this weird cloud formation. It was nothing special. It was just, to me, it looked interesting. It looked as though somebody had skipped a rock on top of the clouds and kind of poked some holes like that. It was just a really cool cloud formation. I liked it. Probably shouldn't have been paying attention to the road, whatever. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking at it and for a second, you know, I thought about the return of Christ. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that when somebody comes along and says, there he is and there's Jesus and he, here he is, to not believe them. But that when he does return, everyone will see him. Everyone will know. There will be no question. You yourself won't be sitting back going, is that Jesus? You'll be like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. And you'll try to turn to your friend and they'll be like, yeah, I know, it's Jesus. And you try to call your mom and she'll, yeah, I see him too. It's Jesus. You don't have to tell me. And I looked up and I saw that cloud and I was like, man, how, how bizarrely, is that a word? Bizarre and amazing would it be to see Jesus return right now to know that our election won't happen and that things will be different, that, that everything bad will be made good. When you read the book of Revelation several times, the, Jesus says to John, this is the place where every tear will be wiped away. How many tears have you shed for loss and pain and sin? And those will just be wiped away. That, that the things that we truly long for, the eternity that's been placed in our heart, will be satisfied finally. We've tried to satisfy it with everything, with, with, with drugs and food and porn and sex and, 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 and money and stuff and relationships, and nothing's ever quenched or satisfied that, that, that yearning inside of us. But then finally, finally that day, it will be, it will be satisfied to overflowing. It will be done. It will be finished. He will be our God and we will be his people. And there will be no separation. There'll be no anxiety. There'll be no, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I'm doing this right. You'll just see Jesus as he is to be seen. And you will go, yeah, this is it. We did it. We're alive. Everything else is dead, but we are here. And we'll all be worth it. And church, I, 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 in that moment, like in, everything that just happened, happened in my head in like a second. When I was driving, I just got it, then got back to the road, you know? But man, we, we, we as Christians have the opportunity. Now, some of you aren't doing this, and that's, that's between you and Jesus. But we have this opportunity to live in this hopeful expectation. You know, so many folks worried about, uh, worried about the election. I see these people, oh, Jesus is in control unless George Soros is involved. And he's the guy who's got all the control. Like, what? But all of that will be gone. It won't matter anymore. Jesus is on the throne. We don't have to worry about these things as though they're going to take anything from us. Because if you have placed everything in Christ, you can't have it taken away. Christ cannot be taken away from you. And see, this message kind of falls, I don't want to say it falls flat, but just look on the other side of the globe. Men and women who are being threatened daily for their faith, some of them being 
threatened with being burned alive and having their houses taken and these people fleeing and, and saving uh, each other, but at the same time going, you know what? We have Christ and Christ can't be taken away. They do exactly what the apostles did in the New Testament. You know, they, they, the, the apostles could have recanted at any point. You know, this whole Jesus thing, we made it up. Please don't hang us upside down. Please don't boil us in oil. Please don't feed us to lions or sauce and two or, 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 or dip us in wax and use us to light your garden, Nero. Please, just, we all made it up. But they didn't. Why? Because they were prideful and stubborn? Because they wanted to, they thought that they could outmaster the Roman Empire? No, because they had seen the truth. And they could not go back on that truth. Some people will ask me, why do you believe in Jesus? And, I, and I'll always first, you know, the word of God and all that. And that's absolutely true. But there are so many things that are tangible only to me that I can't, I can't tell you to believe because of my experience. And I don't, I don't plan on doing that. But in my experience, those are those things that only God could have done that I no longer can turn back. And I would hope that if I was in that moment threatened with death, that I would indeed stand up for Christ. I don't know. I don't like to talk a big game without being there. Um, but there are those things that God has done for me that I simply can't turn back, can't turn away and say God's not there, that Jesus has not done this for me. I, have I ever told you how I met my wife? I met her on the internet. She, and, oh, my wife's here. Okay, I gotta change the story a little bit. No, so... I look back and, and I look back at, we're going to be married 17 years in, in just a couple weeks. 15, been together 17 years, married 15 years. Thank you for that, honey. Um, told you, went to public school, math's hard. Okay, um, but how I met, I, mean, I was living in California at the time. She was here. We happened to buy computers at the same time and, and get that AOL disc, remember that? And pop that in our computer and get AOL and you've got mail. And then you we met each other and we started talking and within six months I was living in New York. I look back at that. You know, you know why I got a computer? Because my cousin said, hey, if you call Gateway, they're going to give you credit no matter what and they'll let you buy a computer today. Your four gigabyte hard drive computer. It would big giant tower and the CRX screen that's like this big. Like, you can just get it. It's like, it's like $1,500 for a computer that can't do anything nowadays, but you can get it on credit. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. So I got a computer. Within a matter of weeks, I meet Sarah online talking about Woodstock 99. Remember Woodstock 99? I want to go. I live there. Oh, that's cool. Never went to Woodstock. We drove around it, but we didn't go to it. My point is this. I look back at that and go, how in the world did I meet my wife? I met her by the grace of God. There weren't, enough, there weren't any you know, good girls in California. I had to meet one out here. I think about my son and my daughter. That's part of their testimony now. That they'll hear that story and eventually they'll roll their eyes. But, but then they'll get to a place where they understand, wow, you know, I'm here because of all these events that took place that only God could orchestrate. And so those are things I can't build your faith with that. I mean, I could share it with you and maybe it does, but I don't expect you to believe in Jesus because of my story like that. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that God gives you those experiences to where you have the word of God as a testimony, but you also have your own experiences that sort of live out what's been told to you. Now, in 
Colossians chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. He, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You ever heard the phrase or had somebody tell you, well, we're more than victors. We're more than conquerors. I just thought that was weird. I mean, it's, it's something from the Bible, so I'm not, you know, saying anything about it. But I always imagined, like, uh, playing a game, like uh, Scrabble. You play Scrabble, you get all the points, and you win. You've, you've, you've won, but how do you more than win? How do you, how do you more than conquer? It's not about gloating. You know, some of you guys might do that, like, oh, you know. I won in your face. That word had like 12 tiles, and I only had two, and I still beat you, and, and I used a Z and a Q in the same word, and you're gloating. Is that more than victorious or more than conquerors? No. In Romans chapter 8, that's where Paul says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I, and I think that what Paul is saying is the same thing he's saying here in verse 15. Have you heard, you know, it's graduation season. You see all the, we call it pomp and circumstance. You got the song and throwing of the caps and, and all those speeches and the people coming and giving, the, the famous people coming and giving commencement speeches and that sort of thing. Um, or you'll see, maybe, maybe you've seen like documentaries about World War II and people coming back and having parades and like the ticker tape parades with all the confetti falling down and, you know, military coming back and that sort of thing. All of that can go back to what we find referenced here by Paul. In the days of Rome, in the Roman Empire, what started off as a very uh, small parade for those who were victorious in a war turned into this like Lollapalooza meets Woodstock meets, you know, uh, Burning Man, Coachella type of festival that would go on for a good week sometimes to celebrate battles and victory. And what they would do was, is, is the general or the leader, the commander, whoever was um, the one in charge of the armor, army or the military, he'd come in and he'd have this huge uh, like chariot with four horses and he'd come in and he'd be all like this with his robe and his victory stuff. And behind him would be like all the loot he got, like all the gold and silver and anything worth the value. Um, there'd be paintings of the war, like maybe like the general, like with no shirt on, like, rah, like attacking somebody or fighting a bear or something. It'd be all these big, huge paintings so that everybody who's standing in the streets and in, in, in this parade could go, oh, they were basically demigods or semi-gods. They were, they were God-like. They were, they, they were attributed divinity at that point. And then at the end of that, you usually had some slaves, people who were taken. They were prisoners of war, those who hadn't been killed in the battle or hadn't been killed because of the destruction. They'd be following behind, bound in chains, uh, sometimes naked, in the middle of this new place where they were going to become captives and slaves. In that, they were more than conquerors. They, they not only defeated their enemy, but made mockery of their enemy. It's not just that we beat you so hard, it's that we annihilated you, and now we're taking you captive, we're taking you back. You aren't even your own people anymore. That's how victorious we were, or how victorious we are. And Paul redeems that as a metaphor. 
and says, see, in Christ, what Christ has done is he has made a mockery. He hasn't just saved you from your sin. He's made a mockery of Satan. He's taken what the Bible calls a, 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 an enemy who's like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. I always thought, why does he call him a roaring lion? Because God took his teeth. He can't devour you. He's taken the power of the enemy through the cross of Christ. Today, you can be awakened, not because, oh, Pastor Tony preached a sermon, but because your enemy, sin and Satan and death, they've been neutralized. It's a sad thing when a Christian goes back to sin because it's like we've gone back and put the shackles on ourselves. What, what God has liberated us from, we've gone back to. But today, we can be awakened. We can be vibrant in Christ. We can, have, we can have our spirits on fire, not because we've been, we've been uh, roused with, a, with a, a lot of yelling and shouting, but because Jesus has conquered Satan, but not just by a little bit. He's made a mockery of Satan to the, to the, to the point where someday we'll look back at Satan and go, this is the one this is who tormented us? This is who had power in our life? This is who we cowered in front of? Church, there's no need. Satan is wily, the Bible says. He's clever, but he is not smart, and he is not all-powerful, and he is not the counterpart to Jesus. Jesus is God, and Satan is a created being who hates you and hates Jesus, but we're on Jesus' side, so we stay there and we'll be awake and everything that he can do to us, we will just look back at him and look back at Christ and know that we're taken care of. Watch our things taken away, doesn't matter, we've got Jesus. Watch our relationships crumble, we've got Christ and we know Christ has got all of this and so we can walk in confidence, not in us, but in him. Walking awake comes from a knowledge that you have of Christ and in Christ, not in your own power and strength. And so today the challenge is, is basically this. Are you awake or not? You know, when I read Acts chapter 2 and I see Peter preach that first sermon, there's no altar call. There's no, there's no big sales pitch. Hey, you know, here's Jesus. He loves you. He give you everything. If you just come to the front and pray. pray. He just says, hey, man. Jesus died for your sins because you're a sinner and you've got to give your life to Christ. And what do they do? It says that they were cut to the heart. Paul didn't have to, or excuse me, Peter didn't have to make an altar call. They said, what do we have to do to be saved? What you've said, God has awakened us. What do we do? Repent, be baptized. That's all you can do. Repent of your sin, put your faith in Christ, be baptized, you know, when the weather's not below, you know, 50. And give your life to Christ and live a baptized life. The, the other day we came across uh, some baptism records over here. And uh, Marie was asking me, who's this? I'm like, I don't know. They got baptized and they never came back. That's what happens. You know, people become members and then they're gone. People give their life to Jesus, but then life gets in the way. I'm not judging them. It happens to a lot of people. Life gets the best of us sometimes. But then years build up, decades, and you're like, someday I'm going to get my life together. Someday I'm going to wake up. Well, today's someday. So if you've heard, if the Holy Spirit has called you today, all I'm asking you to do is to give your life to Jesus. All that you're being uh, tugged at and pulled at and, and, and nudged and 
bothered to do. I mean, literally the Holy Spirit pushing you around in a gentle sense, but in a, you know, you know he's there sense, is today, give your life to Christ. Repent of your sins. Accept the grace that God has for you. Enjoy the mercy that is there for you through him and live your days for him all the days of the rest of your life. Because one day I will look on Facebook and see that you have passed and you will have no more chances. Or I'll get the call that this person is, is dying because life happens and then death happens and you do not know when that will happen. And I'm not big on scare tactics, but I'll tell you this, you do not know. And if you've ever had a relative, you get that phone call, they're sick, they're in the hospital, make it here as fast as you can. You understand the futility, the, 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 the finite nature of life. One minute it's there, one minute it's not. Do not think to yourself, I've got all the time. You don't have all the time. Operate as though you have none of the time and give your life to Jesus. Let's stand. Father, we praise you. And all I'm asking today is that your word would be true. That we would indeed wake up from our slumber. That we would indeed wake up from this sleep. That we would go out, not, not you know, like some weird uh, sports fan who's willing to, you know, paint our bodies and go to great lengths to get tickets. Not, you're not calling us to that type of thing. You're just calling us to read your word, to be with Christians, to be a part of the church, to serve, to love, and to be loved, Lord. And that's what I'm asking for today. And that's what I'm praying for for these people today. That you would awaken us, Lord. Indeed, all of us have something in our lives that is standing in the way of this moment right now. And all I'm asking is that you would remove it so that we might live for you. Even if we, even if we should live terribly for you on some days where we just fail miserably, it's just the worst day. May we know and have the knowledge that you are still there. As Pastor Ben said earlier, you're not a skittish God who runs away because we sinned or gets scared when we go into, you know, go have a bad day. You're not that type of God. You're a God who comes and plants yourself in the life of us. And I'm praying, Lord, for that today. That we would walk in the newness of life that only you can provide. That life would be different. That we would see with different eyes from this moment on, Lord, that we would give our lives to you and live for you until that day when we go from this life to the next, when, when we as Christians fall asleep in the good sense where your word says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that we will see you face to face, that the, the tears we have shed, the pain we have felt, the, the sin we have committed, it will all be gone. The sin that's been committed against us will all be erased. And we will, like the prodigal son, find a loving father with his arms wide open, waiting to welcome in his child. I pray for that for each of us today, Lord. I pray that you would make that a reality to us. That you would give us experiences that, that show you to be true. Not because you have to, Lord, but by your grace. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.